Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Darylise Lyons. And I'm Anna Marie Jones. Every alternate week, we conduct a question and answer episode based on the prior week's podcast. Today, we're talking about a subject that as journalists has required us to look at the way so many members of our field have really contributed to the active othering of people in this country. Yes. Last week's episode is titled Muslims and Media, an exploration of how biased depictions contribute to Islamophobia in America. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, please stop, go back and listen. It'll be really informative. And actually, just speaking on a personal note, last week's episode was one of the most illuminating for me in terms of opening my eyes to things that I hadn't previously been aware of or had exposure to. Same here, Darylise, but can you give an example of that? Yeah. So Anna Marie, even before setting out on these series of interviews, I knew that the media had incorrectly and unfairly depicted members of the Islamic faith before. But what I hadn't really been aware of or awake to was just how much media spin can act as a weapon and a catalyst to perpetrate Islamophobia in America. So for example, something like when a person of the Islamic faith commits a crime and the media reports that and sort of amplifies and magnifies that identity marker, it gives people a false impression of Islam. And something else like when our current president would make statements about Islam or about Muslims in America and the media would just sort of report those statements without clearly presenting that his statements and opinions were misguided or misinformed or sort of went against actually the true teachings of the faith. When the media does stuff like that, it perpetuates Islamophobia in America. And I think in this episode specifically, we gave the example of how the media presented the murders in North Carolina as a dispute over parking, when in fact, those murders that were committed by a white male atheist were actually really a hate crime. Yeah, exactly. Darylise, it was just so tragic to hear the reporting of that and that Dia, User, and Razan were, what, 20-something years old and just starting their adult lives with promising careers in dentistry and whatever else they were doing. But so indeed, well, in fact, Craig Stephen Hicks was a neighbor who was showing signs of Islamophobia, and no one did anything to intervene. And it's sort of antithetical that the police didn't do anything and then said he was cooperative after killing these three innocent people. It just seems, like I said, antithetical. I don't know how else to (laughs) say it. Yeah, right. And, you know, I think for anyone who hasn't listened to the episode and doesn't know what we're talking about, please, if you haven't already, go back and do that. But I think you're you're exactly right, Anna Marie. And it just goes to show that it's so important how we receive information is so important because it really shapes the narrative and it shapes people's viewpoints. And it sort of, I mean, even just Craig Stephen Hicks, who we're speaking about, you know, he posted 
numerous anti-Muslim, just anti-religious in general. I mean, he was an equal opportunity offender insofar as he was against, you know, members of the Christian faith, members of the Islamic faith. He was just spewing hate speech and nobody did anything. Nobody seemed to care. And I think really, hopefully, we can talk a little bit today about the importance of people like getting involved and taking an active interest in one another, even if you assume that another person is very different from you. The the truth is, is that we all have our shared humanity in common. Yeah, something like that. If people see something like that on social media, they should report it. So Darylise, people have a lot of questions about this episode, and I think part of that is the lack of exposure to accurate and authentic information and journalistic representation. Hopefully that's changing. So I had the opportunity maybe a month or so ago now to do a couple of guest lectures at USC Annenberg, and the professor who'd invited me, Channing Joseph, who's a great writer and a journalist and just really does a wonderful job of exposing students to important information and inviting them to interrogate their own biases. But one thing that Channing had assigned was he gave a specific assignment where students were asked to read an article about how the Daily Mirror described a white male terrorist as, quote unquote, an angelic boy who grew into an evil far right mass killer right? So that's how they depicted this white male terrorist. And then the same publication depicted Muslim perpetrators very, very differently. And we'll put a link to that article in the show notes, and then also a link to another article, which was discussed in that same class that showed that research from the University of Alabama shows that terrorist attacks committed by Muslim extremists receive 357% more United States press coverage than those committed by non-Muslims. And so I think these things are horrifying, but what gives me a little bit of hope is that these upcoming students, these new generations of journalists are learning about these things and learning about the dangers of bias and reporting, and hopefully they'll do a better job than their predecessors. Yeah, absolutely. And Daryl, I know a big problem is representation in general, whether it's journalism, books or stories. When people speak about other people's experiences without direct knowledge or exposure to that experience, the issue just becomes very misconstrued, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that is important to recognize is that even if a person has a lived experience of something, that their experience shouldn't be taken as a representation of all people's experience who have that same identity marker. So really, I think that's why it's so important not just to have diversity in terms of subject matter, but like diversity in terms of people from within a certain identity group telling their stories and sharing. So yeah, because I'm really glad I don't mean to cut you off, but not to like pat ourselves on the back. But I just think that in terms of our podcast, we are diligently trying to share research and other people's voices, because that's so important in really giving the full experience of what people are going through. Yeah, absolutely. And I I know that's the reason that we really set out to do this podcast this way. And also, Anna-Marie, we know our, like, we know what we don't know, hopefully, like, at least to some extent. And um, 
I mean, we can't really speak about some of the topics that we present in this podcast as insiders because it's not our experience. So I think that's why it's been so important to get a variety of voices speaking on these issues and then also to really do a ton of research and just know that any topic that we present that's not our own personal experience and even topics that are our own personal experience, you know, we really can't speak to them in a universal way. We can only share our perspectives and we can only share the stories that we've been privy to. That's a very important point. Uh, well, Darylise, I have several questions for you about this topic and about the episode. So let's get started. I mean, not that we haven't already. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We, I guess we jumped right into this episode. But yeah, let's, let's, let's go. Well, I live for these conversations with you. Just so you know, I, I'm so giddy every time we have to do a recording. <laughs> okay. One of the interviewees pointed out that Islam is not a monolithic religion. So could we discuss some of the different ways it's practiced? I know you can't go through all of it, but if we can just highlight some. And I'm asking because in the recent past, the media has focused so much on overseas violent extremist groups like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And I think that that constant coverage makes people watching the news extremely fearful of the Islamic religion. And that leads to many dark misrepresentations about anyone who belongs to the Islamic faith. Yeah. So as you point out, Islam is not a monolithic religion. So I think it would be really hard to go through, you know, like a uh, theology lesson. But what I can say is that much like other major world religions, so for example, you know, if people are more familiar with Judaism or Christianity, what they'll know is that within those religions, there's a wide spectrum of observance and interpretation. And the same holds true for Islam. So I think it's really important for people with no exposure to the faith to understand that, that one person's observance of their faith should not be taken as a representation for everyone else's observance of that faith. And in my interview with Ahmet Tekilioglu, he talked about how people are sometimes expected to be walking experts on Islamic doctrine at nine years old, you know, like that children are, and, and just people in general who belong to a religion that is maybe not dominant within the United States are just seen to be representatives of that faith. And I think it's pretty ridiculous, uh, honestly, that, that people are put in that position. But yeah, just because this is a religion that I think it's like 62% of Americans we reported have not had much exposure, if any, to Islam. I think I would love to just give like a little bit of information that I think might be uh, hopefully dispel some myths and give people a little bit of a sense of some of the themes that are expressed in, in the religions. So the word Islam itself means surrender, and the central theme of Islam is surrendering to the will of God. And also in Islam, like Judaism, like Christianity, there's a belief in a single God. So it's a monotheistic religion, and a central article of the Islamic faith is that there is no God but God, and Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, is God's messenger. And followers of Islam are called Muslims, and Muslims believe that they're following in the same tradition as the Judeo-Christian religion. And really, within the Islamic faith, Muslims also believe that Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, who are central figures in Christianity, were significant prophets before their prophet, 
the Prophet Muhammad. So the holy books in Islam are the Quran, which is like the Bible or the Torah, I guess, if people aren't that familiar, and the Hadiths, which are sayings of the Muslim Prophet Muhammad. And so those are sort of like general beliefs that I think are universally held within the Islamic faith. But then within that, as I alluded to earlier, there are so many different denominations within Islam, different levels of religious observance and just different ways, individual ways of practicing one's spirituality. And to the point of the episode and sort of the larger theme here, unfortunately, the media really doesn't do a good job at depicting that nuance which leads to, as you brought up, Anna Marie, which was the reason that you asked the question, the media tends to just sort of cite these radical groups and individuals who misuse the faith. And I think it's really sad because there's, at the same time, there's a lot of radical Christian fundamentalists who, statistically speaking, at least in the United States, have done far more damage than Muslim extremists have ever done. And sadly, religion can be used as a way of justifying hatred. But I think it's very, very important for people's exposure to the Islamic faith to not just be this negative media reporting of a small segment of the population that has chosen to misuse a beautiful faith. That's why it's so important for more people to learn about the beauty of Islam. Now, Darylise, can you talk more about CARE by reminding us what the acronym stands for, and then by talking about a couple of CARE's most outstanding achievements for the Muslim American community? Absolutely. Yeah, I was so jazzed that in this episode, I was able to interview three people who play critical roles within the CARE organization, one of them being CARE's executive director and co-founder, Nihad Awad. So CARE stands for the Council on American Islamic Relations, and the organization was founded in 1994. And CARE works in a lot of different ways to promote a positive image of Islam and Muslims in America. So some of the things that they do, and this is by no means a comprehensive list because they do a lot, and they have chapters all throughout the United States that are just working to do this important work. But CARE is involved in lobbying, education, and advocacy work with the American Muslim community, but also they're in schools, they're in the judicial system, they're doing things like protesting and marching for Black Lives Matter. I mean, there's just so many things. And also the Muslim American community is so full of a number of different individuals with rich intersecting identities, right? And so As Nihad Awad pointed out in his interview, there's a lot of different intersecting and overlapping identities that people might share. So a person of color, maybe, or a Black person in the Muslim American community might have different struggles or experiences than a white person or, you know, a woman might have different struggles and experiences because she wears a headscarf than a man, right? Because what does it mean to be visibly Muslim? So there's just so many things that CARE is involved in and so many communities that their work touches. And you asked me about the most important work that they do, but Anna-Marie, I just think that for me anyways, it's impossible to answer. And the reason I'm saying that is because CARE is, like I said, it's (laughs) 
nation's leading civil rights and advocacy organization in the U.S., and they have chapters in pretty much every major city. So they're just doing so much important work, and it's so critical, and it's so constant that I don't know how to, like, answer that question. But I hope that listeners will visit the website, care.com, so that's C-A-I-R.com, and they can find out more about what CARE is doing nationally and also what CARE is doing on a local level, because I think our listeners who live in Chicago, let's say, might think that something that CARE is doing in their neighborhood is way more important and interesting to them and prompts them to get involved differently maybe than our listeners in California, who, because the CARE chapter down there is doing different things. So yeah, I mean, I, I hope that listeners will go and visit CARE's website and just learn more about what this incredible organization is doing and how it's impacting the Muslim community in their area. Well, thank you so much for reporting on CARE because I have never heard of that civil rights group before, and it's important for people to know about it. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, and I, I do want to say, too, that like CARE is, I mean, although it's a national organization with employees and a board of directors and this really wonderful and vibrant corporate sort of organization, it's a nonprofit, but they do invite volunteerism. And so people can, if they're interested and volunteer and get involved and support them in a real meaningful and tangible way. And maybe that can decrease that 62% of, you know, people not knowing the Muslim faith. So if people want to learn about it, they can definitely get involved through care. Yeah. Well, I was left with a question. (laughs) So when you reported about the headscarves and and one of your, I can't remember her name, but one of the guests was Aaliyah Kabir, I think you're going to talk about Aaliyah, right? right? So she was really strong on saying that the head scarf is not called hijab, it's called kimar. So I was just kind of left confused. So what is the 411 on that? Like, (laughs) I I don't want to like offend anyone and say, oh, that's a beautiful hijab. Should I just say head scarf? Should I say kimar? Are the words synonymous? That's a great question. And this was really illuminating for me as well. And I'm so appreciative to it's Aaliyah Kabir was the one that um, like really yeah set the record straight for me. But I think that this question that you're asking really goes back to the power that the media has. And so just in terms of a general understanding, hijab is a word that means a modest style of dress. And so it's a tenant of the faith to dress modestly. And within Islam, people like of all genders, right, will refer to a modest style of dress as hijab. And the language applies to, again, like people of all genders. So it's not just women who dress in in this way. But prior to 9-11, most people within the Islamic faith would refer to the head covering worn by some Muslim women. And it's optional, not all Muslim women wear a himar or a headscarf. But prior to 9-11, that's how it was referred to. But then in the aftermath of 9-11, members of the media started incorrectly referring to the headscarf worn by Muslim women as hijab. And, you know, so it was like a, a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation where I think members of the media just thought, oh, people dress in hijab. And instead of understanding that to be the modest style of dress, they understood that to be the head covering itself. 
But really, hijab refers to it's so much bigger than just that individual article of like spiritual article of surrender and clothing. And it refers to behavior, speech, the way people carry themselves, their dress, you know, not engaging in certain types of behavior. It's not really just something that a person wears. It's seen as a state of how a person is, just a state of modesty in general. And it's an Islamic code of conduct that really speaks to spiritual surrender and respect for a person's own self, but also like social respect and respect for others. But then, you know, to kind of bring it back to your question, I think when we talk about the media and just how much power it wields and the ideas of language, after the media started incorrectly referring to the headscarf as hijab, that misrepresentation really took hold. And now even within the Muslim American community, there are a lot of people who refer to a headscarf as a hijab and who don't refer to it as a kamar or a headscarf. But, you know, I think in terms of just me personally, after that interview, like what I learned is that whether or not members of the community choose to refer to the headscarf as hijab, like it's just a shortcut. I personally now feel far more comfortable and far more sort of authentic if I stick with the terminology of kimar or headscarf. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. So Darylise, I wasn't surprised when I heard you report that 62% of Americans had never interacted with a person of the Muslim faith. And I was among that statistic at one point up until I met this beautiful guy, his name is Salim, and he was my husband's roommate in medical school like 20 years ago. So he was the first person I was introduced to who was Muslim American, and his practice was so beautiful, and I got to experience it just in a very authentic way. If he was praying in their common area, or a couple of times he'd be up on the roof and found a spot where he could just be on the roof and pray on his own, and it was just something that we all respected and gave him the space to do that. And I just thought it was so cool. And as you know, I've always been a pretty spiritual person. So his devotion really resonated with me on that spiritual level, even though I have to say, I don't know much about the Muslim faith. I didn't then, and I don't know now, I don't pretend to. And I'm Christian, Darylise, but as you know, I wear a necklace around my neck that has a heart. And around that heart, there's every religious symbol. And the whole point of it is that love is my religion. So I believe that there are all these interconnectivities of all religions and that I saw so much beauty in what Salim was doing. And it kind of resonated with me that, yeah, his religion is very much similar to mine in some ways. Well, Darylise, do you have any Muslim friends and what has been your experience through them? Yeah, so I have quite a lot of Muslim friends. And actually, Asma Rahman, who you heard in the episode and who listeners will have heard, is one of my best friends in the entire world. So it was really a gift to be able to interview her for this episode. But I'll just say that for me, I just see religion as one identity marker. And I will say that it's an important identity marker. Just I think identity markers in general matter and that people are deeply invested in 
their identities, but at the same time, I don't see it as the single most defining part of a person. So when I look at the way that my friends practice their faith, uh, each one has their own unique and individual relationship with their religion and with their the God of their understanding. And so I really just see it more as like an individual thing where I can learn through my friend Asma, you know, one way that she experiences her faith or through my other friends, the ways that they experience their faith. But I don't, I don't see that to be like a representative of the religion as a whole necessarily. And I will say that Prior to, uh, I, I have like a very vast network of friends now, but prior to that, in my early 20s and my late teens, I really had a largely academic understanding of an exposure to the faith and, and to other faiths too, because I didn't grow up with a religion. So I, I learned through school and uh, academia. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I was a religious studies major, uh, English and religious studies and minored in history in college. And so as a result of that, I was such a seeker, I think, of information about religion, but that didn't necessarily translate into understanding and observing how that really plays out in the lived experiences of people. And so for me, one of the things that's been really amazing and really beautiful is to talk to my various friends about how they do dating, for example, which is so different than how I, as a person who doesn't really have a a faith to speak of, like, you know, conceives of dating or just different things like prayer and different sayings and language that I've been exposed to and having friends say dua for me, which is a a type of prayer and, and devotion or bring me back figs from the holy city that I can then have a taste, a literal taste of their spirituality. And so I've learned so, so much through the example of my various friends about what I consider to be such a beautiful religion that in many ways aligns with my own values of social justice and advocacy and peace. But but I don't think of that exposure that I've had to religion through them to be indicative of the larger religion necessarily. And I just continue to quest to learn more. And I continue to believe that religion is just one identity marker. And I might have dozens and dozens of experiences of being exposed to Islam, but those are just dozens of experience. It really doesn't mean that I know it as an insider or in any deep way because it's not it's not my faith. And so I can't pretend to really fully understand it. It takes a lot of inner thought to realize that just because you've been exposed to it doesn't mean that you know it. So um, yeah, that's really a beautiful way of thinking about it. Now, Darylise, what is your biggest takeaway from this episode? Oh, gosh. Wow. (laughs) There were so many. But I think really something that stood out for me, and not just as it pertains to this episode, but just in general that I think would be really important for listeners and, and is really important for me to think about is not centering our own individual experiences. And Asma spoke about that. And she spoke about how the minute that we start to think that our race or religion or culture or gender or orientation or whatever it is, like the minute that we start to think that that is normal and right, and that should be the reference point, is the minute that we start dehumanizing other people. And I think that the danger of dehumanization is that if you don't see another person as a person, or you don't see that person as equal to you, 
then suddenly it becomes easy to either hurt them directly or to just kind of turn a blind eye and not really care when they're being harmed by someone else. Right. That's really important. So it's really important to see that you know, Muslims and there are Christians and Jews and whoever, we're not seeing our religion as the dominant religion. Like there's a shared space for all. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important takeaway. Thank you. Yeah. What about you, Anna Marie? What's your biggest takeaway? Oh gosh, Darlies. I learned so much by listening to this episode. So where do I start? Well, a couple of points were made and have become a bigger part of my awareness since I've listened. For example, the persecution of Muslim Americans in the United States, it's obviously something that we hear about from time to time on the news, but I wasn't aware of how apparent it is. And I mean, you happen to talk to some pretty brave men and women who candidly shared about their experiences as Muslim Americans, but I bet Islamophobia has probably forced a lot of American Muslim families, men and women, to downplay that part of their identity. So that's oppression and it's antithetical to the ideological American melting pot. So Islamophobic rhetoric instills fear in all of Americans, including Muslims. And a U.S. president, I feel, needs to realize that his or her sovereignty runs really deep, meaning that they set an important example as to how all Americans should be treated. And I look forward to the day, honestly, when we have a president of that caliber again. So I want to share, I witnessed 9-11. I saw the first plane hit. It was a tragic, terrible time. And you know, I have a little bit of PTSD from that. <laughs> but I do distinctly also remember that President Bush at the time reminded all of us that our American Muslim brothers and sisters had nothing to do with that attack. They did not attack the Twin Towers. And he also reminded us that Islam is peace. This came from a Republican president, George W. Bush. And at the same time, it was all over the newspapers that Trump claimed he saw American Muslims cheering on the other side of the Hudson River. Now, come on, like, (laughs) there should be 0% tolerance for bigotry and hatred from the top brass down. And granted, he was not president at the time. Bush was president. He was just a citizen. But here he is present now, and he's still spewing this intolerance of the faith and of Muslim Americans and whether or not they are of the faith. They could just be Muslim culturally, right? But I digress. You know, there should be 0% tolerance for bigotry, hatred from the top brass down because it does trickle down to the masses. And our leaders need to fairly represent all Americans. Yeah, I think you're so right. And I love that you pointed that out about President George W. Bush, because I know that we've spoken about this before, but this podcast is really meant to be nonpartisan. And I know that you and I have our own political leanings and our own viewpoints, but like we really do hopefully want to be able to show that people can come together and bind together in love and in respect and in understanding. And I think that sometimes over the course of this podcast, since episodes came out, like we've had a lot of negative things to say about Trump, but that's not because he's a Republican, right? It's and it's not because of his political leanings. It's because we really want to 
yeah, we really want to speak to the dangers of bigotry and hatred and othering. And so, yeah, thank you for just thank you for that awareness that, yeah, leadership matters. And whether whatever a person's political leanings, if they are in a position of power and leadership, they have the capacity to influence millions and millions of people. And I think it's so important that leaders really learn how to use their words to bring about cohesion instead of division, and that they develop the humility to do that. And it's not easy, but I think it's necessary, especially as our country moves forward in the midst of massive racial unrest and, uh, you know, in a global pandemic. Yes, exactly. I have great respect for any leader who can represent all, all constituents. It doesn't matter political party at all to me. Uh, That's personally how I vote and how I look at it. But I'm curious about listener takeaways and questions. So if you're listening to this and have a reflection or a question, please call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Or you can send us a message through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Anna-Marie, something I really want podcast listeners to know about is an offer from our Q&A episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. This is an unprecedented time in history. We're in the middle of a global health crisis. People are stressed. Immunity is low. We're heading into the winter now. And so many of us are struggling physically, mentally, and emotionally. So it's more important than ever to prioritize health. Vita Supreme is an incredible company, and their mission is to help people look great and feel amazing. They're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 20% off on all of their products. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and their supplements are awesome. They've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my three favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Or you can just go to their website and purchase any of their many products. But when you're ready to check out, enter the coupon code diversity to receive 20% off. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 20% off. Hey, Darlies, that's a terrific offer. And I also want to thank you for bringing me some of their products this week when I told you that I had a little bit of the sniffles. So I think that they're working already. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I know. We've been talking about them. And I just thought with all the stress, you could use a bottle of their super greens. Yeah, believe me, I can. Well, Darlies, before we get to our question for this episode, I want to read a message that was sent to us through the website from a listener named Aaron. So Aaron writes, Hi, I love the podcast and I'm enjoying the gift of it immensely. It started to bring up feelings for me as a white man in a diverse family, not as a parent, but as a child of this complexity. My father is gay and my mother and he divorced when I was 17 and then remarried. Dad remarried to a wonderful man who has been with us for 30 years. My mother married into an African-American black family. Then when I married my wife, I gained a sister-in-law who had four beautiful children as a white mother with a black father. I have always been raised with love and told to accept people, but I'm still unpacking my ownership of being white 
and complicated in an America with a racist systemic problem. I have a feeling of awkwardness talking about my family with not understanding language to connect and express feelings. I know there is a job here to be done to make change, but I believe that starting with my family may be the best place to find my footing. Are there many blended families like mine out there, and what are their stories about growing up? Signed, Aaron Weiner. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for your question and just for sharing your experience so openly. I'm really honored and touched. So you describe yourself as a child of this complexity, and it does sound like your experience in your family and just moving about in the world have been complicated, diverse, and unique. At the same time, I believe that you sharing is really important and that anytime people share their experiences, especially when those experiences seem unique or unusual in some way, it offers the opportunity for shared vulnerability and also for people who might see themselves as having a unique or unusual story to recognize that there is someone out there whose experience parallels their own. So I looked it up and I'd suggest that a book that might be supportive in terms of finding some stories that parallel your own, at least in that respect, in terms of parental sexual orientation and identity issues. There's a really great book called Out of the Ordinary, Essays on Growing Up with Gay, Lesbian, and Transgender Parents by Noelle Howie. Ellen Samuels, Marguerite Kammermeyer, and Dan Savage. And it sounds like that book could potentially help you to just be able to read about some other people's stories and see yourself reflected in their experiences. I will say that we will also address some of these topics in an upcoming episode, although the dominant narrative has tended to be, and I think tends to be even in in the work that we've done thus far, to be that of kids coming out to their parents it does often happen the other way, as in your case. And I think it can create openings for greater love and connection. But I think there should really be a lot more representation of those kinds of stories. And so I'm glad that you have a wonderful stepfather and two stepfathers, two wonderful stepfathers. You wrote about your mom marrying an African-American Black man and you gaining an extended family through that that's both interracial and multiracial. And also you wrote about your sister-in-law and your biracial nieces and or nephews. I'm not sure you didn't specify there, but I just want to read back your words. So Erin, you said, I have always been raised with love and told to accept people, but I'm still unpacking my ownership to being white and complicated in an America with a racist systemic problem. I have a feeling of awkwardness talking about my family with not understanding language to connect and express feelings. So yes, I think that what you're speaking about is the difficulty of dealing with these systemic issues within the context of your family. And I think it's essential to start with your family. And I commend you on that bravery because the stakes are a lot higher, you know, when we're having these sorts of conversations with people that we love because there's a level of intimacy and vulnerability. But at the same time, the payoff for doing this work within your closest, most sacred relationships is just so much. I mean, it's just really big, right? Like the ability to have these conversations. And as a person who 
is sort of the pioneer of this work, at least within my family. And I think, Anna Marie, you're sort of in that same boat within your family, right? Doing this work within the context of family, having these conversations is just so healing and so reparative and so beautiful and so restorative. And I recognize that as a white man, like it might be really hard to enter into these conversations, especially if you haven't a level of awareness about your own privilege. But I think just starting there and going into these conversations really clear on your intent. And it sounds like your intent, a huge part of that intent is to be racially sensitive, kind and loving and to locate where you fit within this larger national and international context. I mean, I think that'll be really helpful. And, you know, I hate to plug my book, but and I think it'll help Aaron. So go ahead. Okay, great. Thanks, Anna Marie. So Aaron, my book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, was also written in tandem with a workbook. So there's a book and there's a workbook. But if you get the workbook, there are really helpful exercises that you can use to enrich these familial relationships. And as you say, to find your footing, because I think it's really important for individuals with privilege to be willing to do the work and not at the expense of those who don't have that privilege, right? And so I think educating yourself and engaging in a meaningful way, which it sounds like you're doing just by virtue of listening to this podcast, will help to better equip you to go to your family and have these really meaningful and constructive and healing conversations, but from a place of like you having done the work and not necessarily expecting them to do it for you. And that can be like a really hard line to navigate, but it sounds like you're doing that. And I'm so grateful that you wrote in and I would love to hear what it is for you. If you do go to your family and start to have some of these conversations from a place of love and a place of humility and a place of willingness to learn and grow, because it sounds like you really want to be a lot closer to them. And like there could potentially be this barrier standing in the way. And to address your last question about blended families like yours, I did some searching and there does seem to be a lot of information out there that I could find for kids, but not a lot geared towards adults. And there were a ton of stories that I found about cross-racial adoption, right? So like kind of dealing with issues of race, but from a space of adoption, not necessarily a space of blended family um, through marriage. And even those tended to have to do with cross-racial parenting and step-parenting, and they tended to feature white parents. So although, yes, I am absolutely sure that there are people in similar situations, I would hope that more people start to write those stories and articles and to share those experiences because I think representation is so important. And I applaud you for taking that step to write in because I hope that someone listening might have some similar experiences to yours or know someone who has similar experience to yours and and share this with them as as a resource because I think that the more we can start to see our own experiences reflected in these stories and experiences of others, the easier it is to start to know how to navigate our own paths. Well, kudos to Aaron for asking that question. It takes a lot of courage to be in his situation and want to learn and be a better person for all those 
surrounding him and his family who have different intersections than his. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting that Aaron is also a pioneer with us because he is in a space where he wants to learn and there doesn't seem to be that much information out there. So maybe if he can (laughs) collect some and gather and share with us, that would be awesome too. So let's get on to some other questions. Here's one from Ellie. Hey, Demystifying Diversity, this is Ellie. And my question uh, has to do with religious needs. So I've been thinking, like, if a person has religious needs, such as uh, praying at certain times, what can employers do to create a space for them without making them feel othered? There's my question. Thanks so much for this wonderful podcast. Ellie, thank you so much for that question. I think it's really important to note that in the U.S., by law, so legally, employers are required to make reasonable accommodations for their employees. That said, there's a lot of room for interpretation when you look at the phrase reasonable accommodations. But just to give a few examples, reasonable accommodations would be things like giving a person a day off to observe a certain holiday or providing a place for them to go and pray. Or if there's a work dress code or uniform, maybe modifying that to respect a person's religious needs or comfort. But that said, reasonable accommodation doesn't really get to the heart of your question, I think, which if I'm understanding it is about creating a space without making someone feel othered. So like really creating a space that is both safe and inclusive and uplifting. And I think ultimately that has to do with company culture and with things like workplace diversity and just an employer's willingness to educate themselves about the needs of their workers. So for example, if a member of a certain faith, whether the Islamic faith, the Jewish faith, Christian, Buddhist, whatever, has certain religious practices that they engage in during the workday, I think it's so essential for employers to be 100% supportive of that. So not kind of like grudgingly, right, like making space or making an accommodation, but possibly creating something like a prayer or meditation annex, right? So a designated space that people can go and proactively making sure that you build break times into an employee's schedule, um, which is a good idea, whether it be for religious reasons or not, right? People need breaks. Giving space between meetings to allow someone the time needed for prayer or If you're ordering food for staff and perhaps someone, whether they need kosher options because of their Jewish faith or halal options because of their Islamic faith, I think it's really important to make sure that those options are included and you don't just like get a bunch of ham sandwiches for the office, right? So like being attuned to that. And it also really comes down to attitude. So If an employee says that they need a break for a few minutes to pray, it's being their ally and their advocate and like finding, I know Anna Marie asked me earlier about some of my friendships. And I I know I've gone to conferences with my best friend, Asma, and I just, I noticed that she really had to sort of fight at sometimes at various moments to be like, you know what, like I need a break here to observe my faith or no, we can't order from that place. We need to order for this. And like I, as a friend, as an ally, as an advocate, I started to ask myself, like, how can I be proactive about creating this, these spaces, about observing these needs without putting the onus on the person 
themselves because it's a lot of emotional labor, right? To have to like fight to take up space and to meet your needs all the time. And so I think if someone does express certain needs as an employer, it's being privy to that and it's really being proactive about creating those opportunities for them to be in observance of their faith and their and their religious needs. And I think ultimately that employers want to think about diversity as an asset, right? Like all diversity. So if a person in in your corporation has needs that center around anything, whether it be religion, race, physical abilities, just emotional requirements, I think it's really ideal if employers start to be grateful for the richness that comes from what employees bring and how variety enriches that environment. And then you want to kind of keep those employees happy and healthy and feeling welcomed because diversity is super important and diversity is something that makes your company better. And so the more that you can create safe spaces for all and encourage people to feel like they can be who they are in a work environment, the more likely you are to retain those employees and the more likely you are to increase your diversity. And that can only help your company. You're so right, Daryl. After all, your workplace is like your second home. So you should feel at home where you work. And that would really help out. It really is a paradigm issue more than just a policy issue. Yeah, absolutely. Here's another call from William. Hi, Daryl. My name is William. And I just was wondering, you know, I I hadn't had much, you know, very much exposure to the faith of uh, the Muslim faith until widening my circle of friends and being exposed to greater diversity. But even so, you know, I was wondering about, you know, where I could find resources to learn more about uh, the Muslim faith, about, you know, burdening other friends and, you know, uh, where people with like no exposure to the Muslim faith uh, can find reputable information and work to educate themselves and to fight against Islamophobia here in America. Thank you so much, Darylise. Hi, William. That's an important question. I want to first say that I think it's great that you've expanded your social network and it's wonderful to have friends who have lived a variety of experiences and have perspectives that might be new than those that you've previously been exposed to or aware of. But your question really centers on how and where to get exposure to reputable information. And I think it's great that you're asking that because there's a lot of misinformation that's out there. But at the same time, there are a lot of wonderful books and a lot of wonderful resources. And some of those are for people who are looking to deepen their relationship to their own faith, their own Islamic faith. And then there are others that are more geared towards outsiders looking for a way to develop greater understanding, empathy, and connection. And because it seems, William, like that's where you are, you know, an outsider sort of wanting to gain more information and exposure, I'm going to focus my answer there. So you'll have noticed, and we've spoken about this a few times, that a number of the people interviewed in this episode were affiliated with the Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE. And on CARE's website, they actually have a place where you can get involved and become an ally. And they have information about various religious practices mm-hmm. and, you know, just interfaith organizations, et cetera. So I think I would highly suggest CARE's website. And then in addition to that, I want to suggest two books because I think it's really important to be careful to go to places with reputable information, especially with just 
like a lot of the hate speech that's out there on the internet and, you know, and in the interviews, we spoke about how people as outsiders often don't really know what they're talking about, but might kind of present information as though they do. So I want to recommend two books. One is Muslims and the Making of America by Amir Hussein. And it's a book about the positive impact that Muslims have made on American music, politics, architecture, and sports. And I think it's really cool and interesting to sort of enter into books like this and really see Asma and uh, Dr. Mona Masood really spoke about how American culture is the culture for Muslim Americans, right? And like, there is a tremendous amount of contribution that members of the Islamic faith have made to American society and culture. And so I think just reading that book can be really enlightening and, and very positive and uplifting. And another book that I highly recommend is I Speak for Myself, American Women on Being Muslim. And this book is a series of essays written by 40 American Muslim women. And it's really great because you can get exposure to like just different stories. And I think diversity of stories and representation is really, really important. So William, I hope that you'll check out those books and we'll put links to them in the show notes. Those books sound really insightful, Darylise. And William, I hope that you're able to get some information without putting that responsibility on your friends. I just think it's amazing that you care enough to learn and hopefully others will do the same. Absolutely. Especially considering how, as we talked about on the episode, Anna Marie, so many people in this country have so little exposure to Islam or to Muslim Americans. Yeah. Well, Darylise, here's another calling question. Hi, I'm calling because in this recent episode, you talked about the fear many Muslim people faced after 9-11 and at other times. And I thought it was really impactful when that one person said it was like she had a target on her head. I'm wondering, what are the mental and emotional effects of having to choose between expressing your faith and feeling a sense of safety? Thank you. This is a really important question, and I just want to give a disclaimer that I'm not a mental health expert or an expert on religion. You did mention, Darylise, that you did study religion in college, so I trust you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I did. I did. But first of all, that was forever ago now, right? It's been like a long time since college. But also, I just think in general that intellectual knowledge is very different than lived experience. And so what members of a faith community go through is something I can't ever pretend to have firsthand knowledge of, right? Like, I mean, I just can't imagine what it would be like to hold a visible identity marker such as a headscarf and to wear it as a symbol of submission to God and a symbol of individual agency and community solidarity and just any other number of critical reasons that are core to a person's sense of self. And then to find themselves in a position where that expression of faith makes them feel like a target and not just feel, but actually in some circumstances, actually to be a target. And that would just be devastating. That would be a horrific choice to have to make. And as we know, you know, in terms of the listener question, fear has real ramifications. So a person in a state of fear has elevated cortisol levels, their blood pressure is impacted, their adrenals are involved. So just the impact of a few moments of fear can linger for a long time. And then imagine being in a state of fear every time you leave the house, which is what it feels like for some 
Muslim Americans what it felt like in the aftermath of 9-11 or after Trump was elected when people were being attacked on the street. And some of those people who were being attacked on the street, people were invoking, their attackers were invoking the president's name, Donald Trump's name. So in terms of the listener question, I don't think I can really speak to what would be more damaging for people, whether it would be more damaging to have to make the decision to not wear a headscarf, which is, as we spoke about earlier, it's so critical for many people and it it allows them to be in adherence with their faith and it's just important. So I don't know, like, I think it's an individual issue. And for some people, it felt it was way more damaging and painful to give that up. And so they just chose to like live with the fear and to make accommodations around that. And then for other people, it feels like it's too hard or too traumatizing to have to make the choice to wear a a headscarf and risk being attacked. And I think it's also very different depending on the community that you live in and the neighborhoods that you frequent and, and those sorts of things. But, you know, no one should ever have to sacrifice an important element of their identity or religiosity to feel safer. And especially to feel less authentic moving about in the world. I think that's catastrophic. And I just think that in the year 2020, no one should be put in this position, especially in a nation that was founded on the principles of religious tolerance and freedom. I think it's devastating that in the year 2020, in a nation that was founded on religious tolerance and religious freedom, that there's still Islamophobia in America and that that Islamophobia is so rampant and that it's reinforced by members of the media and that it's reinforced by top level leadership. And I would just hope that through the work of advocacy and education and empathy, it can become much safer for people to freely and openly express their faith so that people aren't being put in that position of having to choose between the pain of being who they are or the pain of being who they're not. Darylise, I completely agree with that. Thank you very much. Well, we have another caller with two questions. Hey, Darylise, this is Brian calling from Connecticut. I have a question about Islam. And my question is this, um, actually two questions. The first one is, are people of um the Islamic faith still feeling backlash from 9/11, as far as people being trans, uh, being uh, Islamophobic. And my second question is: Are people feeling backlash from our president's stance on immigration and foreigners? Have a good day. Take care. Hi, Brian. Great questions, and really thank you for calling in with those. So I know we talked a lot in the episode about the backlash immediately after 9-11 and also after Trump took office and instituted what's been widely referred to as his Muslim travel ban. And also right after the 2016 election, when many Muslim people feared for their safety because of the statements that Trump had made and how they catapulted people to enact their own acts of violence against Muslim individuals. But in answer to your question, yes, it is still absolutely happening. And I can't help but wonder, you know, I mean, I know we're recording this in the aftermath of our most recent election, and I can't help but wonder if people might also be more afraid now in light of what's happening in the world 
But Brian, in answer to your specific questions about whether people are still feeling the backlash from 9-11 and et cetera, I think it's important to remember that the past impacts and informs the present. And so the Islamophobic rhetoric and ideas and violence that happened in the past continue to propel misrepresentations of Islam. And I think it's really important to note that Anna Marie pointed out earlier in the episode that George W. Bush, who was president during 9-11, was really clear in his messaging to the American public after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And I just want to read, you know, after Anna Marie brought it up, I think it's really important to kind of give more details and more specificity. And so there was a speech that George W. Bush gave at the Islamic Center of Washington, D.C. on September 17th, 2001. So this was now almost 20 years ago. And we'll post a link to the full speech in the show notes, but I just wanted to read a couple of excerpts. So here's what George W. Bush said, and I quote, These acts of violence against innocence violate the fundamental tenets of the Islamic faith, and it is important for my fellow Americans to understand that. The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. When we think of Islam, we think of a faith that brings comfort to a billion people around the world. Billions of people find comfort and solace and peace. And that's made brothers and sisters out of every race, out of every race. Those who feel like they can intimidate our fellow citizens to take out their anger don't represent the best of America. They represent the worst of humankind and they should be ashamed of that kind of behavior. This is a great country. It's a great country because we share the same values of respect and dignity and human worth. And that's all I'm going to read from it today. But I would really encourage people to check out the show notes and just really start to understand that faith, instead of a tool for division and discrimination, can really be used as a way to bring people together and bring peace and love. Darylise, that speech is so beautiful and profound you know, given everything that's going on in the world right now. So thank you for sharing that. So Darylise, this next question is one I'm really curious about, and I also think it's really sobering. Hello, this is Ray from Canada. First off, I wanted to say thank you for this podcast and the work that you're doing in creating a space to have these conversations. I think um, it's so important for all of us to be listening and learning and open to hearing these conversations. And I also had a question about Craig Hicks that you spoke about in one of your episodes, wondering what the outcome of the trial was for that and how the media ended up portraying that and whether there was a change in the portrayal in the media. So if you would speak to that, that would be great. Thank you again. Hi, Ray. I love that you're listening in Canada. That's a great question. And I probably should have spoken about this in the episode, but it was a hard balance to sort of find because we wanted to make it clear that Craig Stephen Hicks is a person who committed a terrible hate crime, but also that he represents something larger, which is widespread Islamophobia in America and elsewhere. So there is a phenomenal TED Talk given by Suzanne Barakat, who's the sister of Dia Shadi Barakat, and the TED Talk is entitled Islamophobia Killed My Brother, 
Let's End the Hate. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes because I think it's really important for people to watch that and to listen and to learn. And the TED Talk goes more in detail into the implications of media representation and Islamophobia. But in terms of your question, Ray, about Craig Stephen Hicks, he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without parole. And the judge who sentenced him, Judge Orlando Hudson, also added an additional five years to his sentence because uh, Craig Stephen Hicks shot into a building. And so that came with like an extra sentencing term. But it was really tragic because the shooting, we didn't talk about this in the episode, but the shooting was actually recorded, not visually, but the audio of the shooting was recorded. When Dia Barakat went to the door, he was holding his cell phone. And I think Probably it's speculated that he wanted to record his neighbor because Craig Stephen Hicks had been harassing the young couple since they'd moved in. And so it's a reasonable assumption that Dio was going to use the recording to maybe apply for a restraining order or get some sort of support. And the video, on the video, you can hear Hicks complaining to Barakat and the Abu Salah sisters that they were using three parking spaces, which prosecutors said was not actually true. And when Barakat responded that they were using no more spaces than condo rules allowed, Hicks responded, I think something to the effect of, you're going to be disrespectful towards me, I'm going to be disrespectful. And then that's when you can hear on the audio, he pulled the gun from his waist and proceeded to shoot. And it's chilling. The phone audio was played in the courtroom and in it, you can hear the phone drop and then the sound of people screaming and then shots and then silence. So the reason that I'm saying all of this, Ray, because your question was to ask what happened to Craig Stephen Hicks. But I think that it's important to note that despite just so much evidence to the contrary, Hicks initial explanation about him shooting because of a parking dispute was never actually overcome. I think partly because of the way that the media represented it and partly because of the fact that the police sort of believed Hicks's explanation without doing enough due diligence. And so the crime wasn't charged as a hate crime. And despite all the evidence, Hicks was charged for the murder of three people, and he was sentenced for the murder of three people. But I I really believe that it should have been charged as a hate crime, because it was, it was Islamophobic. And it's especially sobering when you start to think about the fact that Hicks had previously showed off a handgun when he wanted to intimidate a neighbor who happened to be Korean, and also a Black remodeling worker who I think was in his neighborhood. And he posted hate speech about Christians and Jews as well as Muslims. So there was just so much evidence that this man was spewing hate and violence and racism and xenophobia and religious intolerance. And I think there were so many points along the way when he could have been stopped and these murders were preventable. It's terrible, Darlene. Thank you for sharing that information. It's, it's hard to repeat all of that and like talk about it, but it's important for people to know. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, I would hope too that I think sometimes people don't take these kinds of things seriously. And like we spoke a little bit in the episode with Ahmet Salim Tikilioglu, and he was saying about how like these microaggressions, it's important to sort of call them out. And what Hicks was doing was way more than microaggressions. But I think 
it can be sometimes it can feel like, oh, well, we need to like let things go. But I think really interventions need to happen a whole lot sooner because these kinds of things don't have to happen. People don't have to die because of other people's hatred. Yes. And things escalate very quickly when it's not stopped. Well, dear Elise, we have one final question, and I think it's going to be a very nuanced answer. So wow, okay. I can't wait to hear it. Good morning. My question is, how do we appreciate religions or cultures without appropriating them? Thank you very much. That's such a great question. And Anna Marie, you're right. The answer to that is very nuanced. And I think it's important first to just give a general definition of cultural appropriation so that people know what it is. So cultural appropriation refers to the act of taking or using things from another culture that is not your own, especially without showing that a person understands or respects this culture. So this can be extended to religion and race and to other elements of a person's identity or to art and entertainment. There are like a lot of ways that I think appropriation can happen. So a glaring and terrible example of cultural appropriation that's been widely agreed to be just unacceptable is something like blackface, right? So I'd say that some things, that example of blackface is just outright obvious that it's cultural appropriation and that it's not at all okay. But there are other things that I think can be a little more challenging to figure out, like the use of hairstyles or the types of cuisine or clothing choices. And, you know, in our last official episode prior to Muslims and media, the episode that we did was Asian studies, an examination of how the model minority myth has contributed to the virus afflicting Asians in America. And one of the interviews in that with the interview I conducted with Don Wyatt, Don put it really well when he said that he didn't commence the study of China with the aim of becoming Chinese. He did so because he thought Chinese culture, language, and values had something to offer him. And so I think when we think about cultural appropriation, in the same way, I would say that if you're appreciating and showing reverence and respect for another culture or religion, and you're seeking to learn about it and learn about it in a way that just offers a certain amount of veneration and integrity, then I would say that's appreciation and it's beautiful. But if you decide that you want to kind of just pick and borrow elements of a religion or elements of a culture based on your own self-interest, then that might be appropriation. But I would say if a person is in doubt, it's really good with these things to err on the side of caution and to be humble enough to maybe do a little bit of research and investigation and just kind of get curious about why you're looking to borrow from another culture or looking to utilize things from that culture. And yeah, ask yourself your why and do a little bit of research and really get to know the meaning behind certain things. Because I think that's important if you're going to yeah, I think it's really important to just show respect for other cultures. Thank you, Darylise. That's a great answer. Now, before we say goodbye, let's make sure to do our Demystifying Diversity t-shirt giveaway. So during our Q&A episode, we select a name at random from all the subscribers to our newsletter and all the callers and people who emailed with questions. And this week's name we picked is Kathy Steinway. Yay! Yay, Kathy. We'll be contacting Kathy to arrange to send out the free t-shirt as a thank you for being a Demystifying Diversity podcast listener. 
Kathy is one of our subscribers to our email list, and if you want to subscribe and be eligible to win a t-shirt and keep up to date on episodes and events, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up. Congratulations, Kathy. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to everyone who's listening to this Q&A episode. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. Our Q&A episode song is Locale by Speak Easy with permission from Blue Dot Studios. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. And if you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity by our very own Darylise Lyons. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Join us next week for our next episode, Latinx, an invitation to reconceptualize Latin American immigration and to see the possibility of cultural and linguistic diversity. And in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.